y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week on the show, Bim Adewunmi and Nicole Perkins, the co-hosts of the Slate Podcast Thirst Aid Kit. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all, from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Happy weekend to my listeners, to my guests. I am so excited to have the two hosts of the podcast Thirst Aid Kit, the Slate podcast all about pop culture and thirst. Nicole, Bim, hi. Welcome. Hi. How are y'all? Doing great. I just okay. had the best introduction from Aunt Betty. Right? Who, can I just say, got my name right on the first go, yes, which is did. more than many people appear to be able to do. <laughs> well, I'm glad you got it right. And I'm so glad that you both are here. We're going to talk more about your podcast in a bit. But first, I want to talk about the song that we're hearing right now. You know who this is. Jennifer Lopez. She's having a week. She's having a year. Do you remember this song? Absolutely. Of course. <laughs> This was 1999. Wow. Um, her first big single, If You Had My Love. And I'm playing it this week because I want to celebrate her career because it just won't stop. It was announced this week that J-Lo will be co-headlining the halftime show at the 2020 Super Bowl with Shakira. And this is like 20 years into her career. Yeah, I mean, I respect her hustle. I, I remember when she was on In Living Color as one of the fly girls. Oh, yeah. I respect, I respect the long game that she's playing. Oh, yeah. And she's also just having such a big year. So her movie Hustlers was a number one film this year. She brought back that deep cut green Versace dress and walked on um, like runway, I think, two weeks ago. It's like a genocide or something going on this year. <laughs> Do we feel this? I'm, you know, I haven't seen Hustlers yet, but I have seen the Instagram videos of her prepping for Hustlers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that woman is 50 full years old. Like mm-hmm. half a century on God's earth. <laughs> Good for her. Good, Good for, for her. her. Good for her. I will be watching the halftime show. I will say, if you're going to have Shakira and J-Lo at that halftime show, the special guest has to be Pitbull, right? <laughs> you need Pitbull there. The Trinity. Yes. <laughs> okay, we're going to start the show as we always do. Every week, asking my panelists to describe their week of news in only three words. But before we get to that, we have to take some time to talk about the big news story of the week, if not the year. You know where I'm going. Uh, The impeachment investigation. Mm. Uh, This week, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi opened a formal impeachment inquiry into President Trump over his interactions with Ukraine. Um, This story is so complex, so fast-moving, so many moving parts, a lot we still don't know. But I have a few thoughts and a few questions. Nicole, Bim. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I have this sinking feeling that no matter what happens with this inquiry, with these proceedings, no one will end up happy. Democrats will not be happy. The GOP will not be happy. The American public will not be happy no matter what happens. Do y'all feel this way too? I, I do think, I will say that in as much as no one will be happy, some people I think will be happier than others, whatever mm. the outcome. I don't know. I, for one, am not very excited about anything. I am very, um, I don't want to say neutral. Um, I think the word is numb. That's what it is. To everything that's going on. Yeah. I do wonder 
as someone trying to just consume this news and stay informed, and this is a question to y'all too, how do you stay on top of this stuff without going crazy? How do you survive this season when the news is just hitting you so quickly? Because we have to stay informed. This is important stuff. But I, as someone who is paid to stay up on this, have been overwhelmed. <laughs> mm, what yeah. is your strategy for just the news right now? Ultimately, I think I read the news and I do my best to close tabs. <laughs> and just, you know, just like move myself from an online, like every every minute online headspace into kind of like, you know, the news will find me. There you so go. <laughs> I don't really have to kind of like, you know, go for a skinny dip in the news. It's fine. It'll find me wherever. I could be on the highest mountain and a small child would run up and gonna be like, hey, Bim, have you heard? And I'd be like, uh-huh. you know what? Thanks, Sonny. I do know now. Like, you know, so it's like I don't have to chase the news. Such is the era. You know that that apparent curse, may you live in interesting times. We are in interesting times. The the, the, the stuff is finding us. So, you know, you just have to kind of figure out ways to kind of just switch off. Hence, Mm -hmm. you know, fanfic. (laughs) <laughs> or romance novels. Like I have a, I have a oh, good man. amount of just a good amount of outlets. Yeah, yeah. My thing is just like, this is the time where you should not be following this stuff on Twitter. It's like a fire hydrant if you go on there checking out impeachment <laughs> Twitter. It just, it, it like it's bananas and bonkers. I can't do it. Mm. I cannot do it. Anyway, enough impeachment. We've talked <laughs> about that, listeners. If you want more, go check out the NPR Politics podcast. Now we're going to get into uh, our three words. Nicole, you're up first. Okay. So I think, um, if I've done this correctly, my three words are commanding, irrational, surprising. That sounds good to me. Who are you talking about? I am talking about Greta Thunberg. Okay. Climate woman. Climate yes, girl. Our, our 16-year-old Swedish climate activist. Yes. She's had a few weeks, huh? Yeah, it's been an interesting last year for her. Um, And the last few weeks, some conservatives, climate change deniers, people like that are very upset that she is leading this discussion about climate change and what the government and our officials and our leadership should be doing. Yeah. And so she came to fame in Europe um, for about a year now. She uh, was doing these strikes where she would encourage students to walk out of school to protest the lack of action on climate change. She really blew up doing that. Mm -hmm. And then this week, she actually went to the U.N. after crossing the Atlantic in a sailboat. Uh, We actually have some audio of her speech at the U.N. this week. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you! She's a powerful speaker. Absolutely. I'll give her that. She has a commanding presence, and when she talks, it is uh, she is getting across the urgency of the situation and. People yeah. lash out by trying to talk about her and um, her disorders and things like that. And this lashing out has been really kind of incredible. So Fox News had to apologize this week after a pundit on their airwaves called her a mentally ill Swedish child who was being exploited by her parents. She has Asperger's. Um, also, there are these other conspiracy theories saying that she's a crisis actor. It's really a lot. Um, Bim, does that kind of response to her surprise you? 
It it doesn't surprise me. I think mm. it's actually remarkably in keeping with how we treat women who uh, speak up. Mm-hmm. And I, I I think back to just the ways in which we will stand and you know proclaim very firmly that a sixteen year old is an adult when we are looking for examples to try them in a court of law for a serious crime. Mm. And mm. then without a shadow of a doubt, this person is an adult. They can handle it. They knew responsibility. They, they can understand stuff. They're not babies, blah, blah, blah. And then when somebody stands up and says, hey, guys, it seems like we're killing the planet on which we live. <laughs> then you're like, oh, she's a kid. Right. She's a kid. And not only is she a kid, she's a ridiculous kid. She's, you know, she's not well and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, eh, you have to you have to pick a struggle. Like, which one is it? Do we believe 16 year olds or do we not? Mm, yeah. I am also intrigued with the way the left has really glommed on to her. In some ways, it seems as if millennials or Gen Xers or boomers are offloading the hard emotional labor to this child. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard for people... I'm a Gen Xer, and Mm -hmm. I think Greta's um, stance is also that it should be more on the government. The government should do more than the individual. And I think Gen Xers have, we've grown up in this situation where we were told if we just recycle, we'll be okay. Exactly. So people are stuck in their ways, but they're also willing to do what they can. Mm. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two very special guests this weekend, the hosts of the Slate podcast, Thirst Aid Kit, Bim Adewunmi and Nicole Perkins. So glad y'all are here. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Tell our listeners what your podcast is all about. Well, our podcast is about popular culture and specifically how popular culture intersects with uh, desire. And we are kind of trying to explore what it is that elevates certain people into the position of, you know, a sex object or a, you know. (laughs) A thirst object. Yeah, Yeah. a thirst object. Someone someone onto whom millions of us project certain ideas. Mm -hmm. It's basically an anatomy of thirst. We're trying to figure (laughs) stuff out. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. All right, Bam, do you have three Mm. words? Yes. So my three words are... uh, Inequity, effort, and unprepared. Okay, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the Emmys. Mm. It's a bit of a recurring problem. The issue of diversity and inclusion, etc. Yeah. And there are few stages on which we can really see what that looks like in terms of the industry. Mm-hmm. And the Emmys uh, this past weekend was exactly the, the the arena for that. Yeah. You know, it seemed like this best of times, worst of times situation because after the Emmys last Sunday, there were three big wins for people of color. You know, so Billy Porter, one lead actor for a drama. He's on the show Pose. He's the first openly gay black man to win that award. Mm-hmm. Jarrell Jerome, one for outstanding lead actor in the limited series or movie for his work on When They See Us. He's the first Afro-Latino to win that award. Right. And then one day at a time, this Latinx sitcom won for editing as well. And so you see that and you're like, oh, that's great. But overall, pound for pound, the nominations for people of color in acting categories was actually down. 
Yes, yes. And it's it's one of those things where before you start applauding anything, you really have to kind of take a step back and see exactly, you know, what are we saying when we say it was a big night for three individual people? Yeah. In the grand scheme of things, that is paltry. That is a, a massive underrepresentation. Mm. And, you know, I, I there's a it's impossible to think about Billy's win without putting it next to RuPaul's win. Uh, um, so RuPaul won again for Best Reality Show for RuPaul's Drag Race. Yes. So after Ru won this award, uh, he was asked backstage by a reporter from Essence magazine why all the people behind him as he got the award were white. Well, first of all, the host of our show is black, gay, and uh, uh, a drag queen. So... Uh, check, check, and check. Uh, but um, we're pretty diverse. Yes, there are uh, lots of different types of people here. Um, is it important? Absolutely. You know, hey. It know, really I spoke to, I, I think, the problem. I, you know, I, I, there I, is I, I the like image of diversity. Like there is the face of it in someone like RuPaul. Mm. But you peel back that top layer mm. in the writers' rooms, in the C-suites, yeah. you don't see that. Right. And, you know, to talk about the idea of somebody speaking out loud using a platform, Michelle Williams gave a speech when she won her Emmy, um, talking about specifically the difference in pay between, you know, white people, white men. That was really powerful as well. I think we have audio of that, too. The next time a woman, and especially a woman of color, because she stands to make 52 cents on the dollar compared to her white male counterpart, tells you what she needs in order to do her job, listen to her, believe her. It's one of those things you hear it and you say, well, that's really powerful. Thank you for that. But sometimes it seems, in Hollywood especially, the end of the action is just saying the words, people of color or saying mm-hmm. the words pay equity, or mm-hmm. saying the words women. Right. And that is the extent of the action. Yeah, it's not dissimilar in that way to the whole Greta Thunberg thing, where everyone's mm. kind of like, she's amazing, applause. Anyway. And that's it. Yeah. yeah. And this <laughs> exactly. is a similar thing, where it's kind of like, women of color, we've said the you know the magic yeah. words. And that's great. But also yeah. it's kind of, and I, I, this is not me dissing Michelle, obviously. No. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad she used her platform for this, and it was a powerful speech, and it is important. But I do think that it's incredibly important that people say these, these things. And then the more radical, the more important step is to actually actually implement what these people are saying in their powerful speeches because the speech doesn't do that much all right listeners coming up we're going to talk a bit more about climate change uh the last few weeks have been full of discussion about how to address it after the break we talk with an author who says one of the ways to fix it is to become a vegan at least during the day he will explain you're listening to it's been a minute from npr we'll be right back Support for NPR comes from Newman's Own Foundation, working to nourish the common good by donating all profits from Newman's Own food products to charitable organizations that seek to make the world a better place. More information is available at newmansownfoundation.org. Hi there, I'm Felix Contreras, host of NPR Music's Alt-Latino Podcast. Every fall, many people around the country celebrate Latino Heritage Month. And while we like to say every month is a Heritage Month in our program, we still like to do something extra special. Intrigued? Listen and subscribe to Alt Latino from NPR and join the fun. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests, the host of the Slate podcast, Thirst Aid Kit, Bim Adewunmi and Nicole Perkins. What is the last thing y'all did this week? 
to actively address climate change? Well, I recycle, so I and I have a um, addiction to uh, what do you guys call it? Soda pop? I don't know. I'm I'm from the <laughs> south, so I say cold drinks. Um, so <laughs> I recycle all of my bottles, uh, things like that. Okay. I try to limit my showers now, okay. and I make sure to turn off all the lights. I am very conservative about lights and mm. things like that, and whether the fan needs to be going and that kind of thing. Mm. Uh-huh, my father uh-huh. would approve of that. My father hates uh, a light left on. Yeah, um, I can't like this. Right? I, it's a, I yeah. think it's a big dad thing. I'm just kind oh, of like, yeah. these lights are on, but for whom? The mosquitoes? <laughs> and it's like, all right, calm down. <laughs> big um, dad energy. Yeah. Right, huge dad energy. Yeah. I ask you all this question because there is so much discussion this week about what's the best way to address climate change. Um, We have seen climate strikes across the country this week. And a big point of debate is this question of individual action or larger systemic action. I spoke recently with an author, Jonathan Safran Foer, who addresses this debate head on. So he made a name for himself as a fiction writer. You probably know his book, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. But he's out with a new book this month, It is not fiction. It is very personal. It's called We Are the Weather. Saving the planet begins at breakfast. Uh, I talked with Jonathan about one of his suggestions to address the climate crisis as individuals. Uh, This suggestion is already getting a bunch of blowback. He's urging folks to be vegan for at least a part of their day. We spoke this week. Here's our chat. Hey, Sam. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. All right. What is the thesis and nut graph that the media is assigning to your book? When this book is mentioned, the one thing they say that's the big takeaway for them is this guy is telling Americans to only eat meat and dairy and animal-based foods after sundown. Explain that. I'm not that guy. (laughs) This is not like an opinion that I'm sharing. It's not my perspective on things. The most comprehensive analysis of the science of the relationship between food and climate change was published at the end of last year. And what its authors concluded was that while people who live in certain undernourished parts of the world can afford to eat a little more meat and a little more dairy, Mm -hmm. people who live in the United States, the United Kingdom, and Europe need to reduce meat consumption by 90%, Mm -hmm. dairy by 60% in order to prevent what they called catastrophic, irreversible climate catastrophe. And and so the how for you, which is what's been getting the most attention in the book is, and correct me um, if this is wrong, but the first two meals should be vegan. And your last meal of the day, dinner, you know, that late meal, feel free to have some animal-based food. That's yeah, that's so your that's okay. my that's my approach yes. to the science. Other people you have other approaches. I, I actually met a guy earlier today who was talking to me about how he and his son like really love breakfast. And that's like the big yeah. meal of the day for them. And yeah. they cook eggs and bacon. And I said, okay, is like lunch a big deal? He's like, no, no, no. I just, you know, it's like peanut butter, jelly, whatever. It's hmm. nobody. I, I get a turkey sandwich. I said, can you imagine having something different than a turkey sandwich? He said, yeah, sure, no problem. So like different things are difficult in different ways for different people. Like I find it relatively easy to eat uh, fewer animal products. I find it really hard to fly less. Really? There's certain people who would say like, no problem. I won't, you know, I I barely fly as it is, but eating is hard for me. So I think we have to be respectful of each other's limits. Are you following the vegan two out of three meals rule yourself right now? When I'm at home, it's easy. Yeah. Right. But when you find yourself out in the world, different situations present different situations. So I'll I'll tell you about a moving experience that happened to me recently. I gave a reading and at the end, 
I, you know, I do like a signing after the reading. And this young couple came up to me and they put their book in front of me. And um, on the title page, which would normally be empty, was a whole lot of their handwriting. And I said, what's that? And they said, this is, this is our plan. We decided tonight that we need a plan. We're getting married in a month. And if we don't say what our plan is for working against climate change, we just know ourselves. We're going to do what we've always done. So their plan was to eat vegetarian unless they were um, served meat at a friend's house, mm-hmm. to eat vegan two days a week, that they weren't going to have more than two kids, and they weren't going to drive more than 1,000 miles a year. So you know, one can look at that and say, that's really ambitious. One can look at that and say, God, you could really do more. What I looked at it and said was, holy crap, I don't have a plan. Hmm. Like I, I wrote this damn book. So this book you, is you know, a plan. <laughs> well, this book was only a plan for my eating, yeah. you know, but I didn't have a plan for flying. I didn't yeah. have a plan for driving. I didn't yeah. have a plan for how I was going to participate in the kinds of, you know, legislative and systemic changes that we know we need. The problem is the things that we have to do less of are things we like. Yeah. Uh, we all know Mark Bittman, celebrity chef, writes in the New York Times about food and all kinds of things. He made a vegan before 6 p.m. argument before, uh, yeah. and he also reviewed your book. And he basically said, I tried this before. It didn't move the needle. Um, and there's a quote in his review that I kind of want you to respond to if you're okay with it. He yeah. says, the needle will not move an iota through the force of another member of the intelligentsia telling people the truth in a variety of ways, convincing them of the veracity and holiness of his positions and waiting for the light bulb to go on. I think it raises this question, like, are you the right vessel for this message? Well, there's not going to be any single messenger that's Mm. going to be right. You know, this is a global problem. America says, let's wait for China to act. Uh, Someone like Mark Bittman might say, let's wait for the government to force us to do something different. Um, we've been waiting and it's not happening. And um, we need to take on some responsibility, not because individuals can solve this problem. We cannot solve this problem alone, but because when we act and when we act collectively, um, we're going to push corporations and legislators Mm. to behave differently. So I think it was probably the case that he he couldn't move the needle, but the needle has been moving very Mm. dramatically in the last five years. You know, beyond beyond, uh, the Beyond Burger, that company, Beyond, their IPO was the most successful IPO of any company in America in the last 15 years. Mm. This stuff is happening really quickly. I totally see your point that like the needle is moving more than it was when Bittman wrote what he wrote, but... How do you feel about that other line he said when he when he said another member of the intelligentsia telling people the truth in a variety of ways? How did you grapple with who you are and your place in the world as you were writing this book? More than two and a half times as many people who make less than $30,000 a year identify as vegetarian than people who make more than $75,000 a year. People of color are disproportionately vegetarian. Um, there's a Harvard Medical School study at the end of last year that found that it is $750 a year cheaper to eat a plant-based diet than a meat-based diet. Mm. Um, and it's, of course, uncontroversially better for our health. Mm. So it's amazing how often affluent white guys say, hey, this is an argument for affluent white people, hmm. um, when reality just doesn't bear that out huh. at all. The huh. people who are most involved in this who are most ready to change um, are not affluent white people. If only affluent white people would catch up Uh. with the rest of the country. So some of this stuff is cultural. And you talked about this a bit in the book. 
like meat is wrapped up in notions of food, is wrapped up in notions of family and culture and identity. Part of me misses the idea and the memory of my father filling up the deep freezer in the laundry room with steaks after a slaughter, you know, like, and so me not eating steak would mean saying goodbye to some of that memory. Have you talked with people or in your research or writing or or even personally thought about what we lose spiritually as we give up meat? Sorry, that was real woo-woo, but you get what I'm saying. I totally get what you're saying. And first of all, no one's asking you to get rid of steak. I know, I know, I know. What we're talking about is is eating less. No, no, it's, it's really an important distinction. We're not saying like, reverse your identity or give up your culture. You're saying eat less of a certain kind of food. When you talk about a spiritual connection, I think that food can be a component of it, but mm-hmm. food is not the source of it. Mm-hmm. You know, Like the values that my grandmother gave me, my dad, my mom, the values that your dad gave you, the really deep stuff that was transmitted didn't depend on a specific food. And my guess is some of the values that your dad gave you also included like taking care of things, you know, and like making sure that you left things as you found them or better. And like providing for people. Like his whole thing was like, we're all going to eat. Yeah. You know, my hope, my dream would be we get rid of factory farming and we move to the kind of farming your dad did. And you can still have your steak. You just have it like <laughs> once a day, maybe, or once every couple days. I really don't you know, want even... my listeners to think I'm eating ribeyes every other meal. <laughs> it's not You're definitely that. giving that impression. <laughs> I know, Jonathan, what have I done? What have I done? Oh, my um, goodness. Yeah. No, we're, we're in this together. Um, what are you going to do about your flying? You're still flying planes a lot. Are you thinking about tackling that? So what I've decided is that in the coming year, I won't fly for any vacations. Huh. Um, and I've done a lot of that in the past. Where are you going to go? Every year, I would, I'm going to take trains. There's a, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to live in Brooklyn, uh-huh. and there are many awesome places that you can reach by train. Um, you go to Pennsylvania, go to the Adirondacks, go to yeah. upstate New York, go to Montreal. Montreal's magical. Montreal is an amazing place. Yeah, I haven't been there in years. I would love to take my kids there. Yeah. Um, and I would love for that conversation to be part of our, the way we are as a family. Like, hey guys, like we want other people to be as lucky as we've been. You know, we can yeah. keep doing whatever we want as Americans and a lot of people are going to suffer before we suffer. You know, mm. poor people suffer before rich people when it comes to climate change. And I want my kids to be aware of that. Thanks again to Jonathan Safran for author of We Are the Weather, Saving the Planet Begins at Breakfast. Back here in studio with my two panelists, the hosts of the podcast, Thirst Aid Kit, Bim Adewunmi and Nicole Perkins. Could y'all ever see yourselves being vegan during daylight hours? That's really hot. That's, you're giving up see, butter. Yeah, I, I need butter. You see? <laughs> I love the butter. I love, I love butter like it's a cousin. Like I'm not going to let that go. Yeah. I do think that the the modes of food production have changed so much with, you know, the, the growth of the Earth's population that some things need to be radically reconsidered mm. before we can even presume to fix any of this mess. Yeah. Questions that will not be answered in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listeners, time for a break. When we come back, my favorite game, Who Said That? BRB. Support for this podcast comes from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. 
Fall movies are about to heat up and Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR has you covered. We'll tell you whether some of the big films on the way are as good as you're hoping they are, and we'll help build a list of gems you can uncover for yourself. Start your Oscars prep early with Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Listen and subscribe now. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders, your host, here with two panelists this week, the hosts of the podcast Thirst Aid Kit. Bim Adewunmi and Nicole Perkins should also say Bim is also a producer for a little show you may have heard of, This American Life. That's right. <laughs> that must be, I mean, I just always imagine the like table reads for that show are the most eccentric, amazing things ever. I'm going to let you stay in that belief and not confirm or deny. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Bim, Nicole, it is now time for my favorite game, Who Said That? Who said that? Who said that? Neither of you have played this game before, and I love it when we get two newbies. I'm so excited for this. Uh, (laughs) The game is very simple. I share a quote from the week. Y'all have to guess who said that, or at least guess the story I'm talking about. Uh, The winner at the end of this gets nothing but bragging rights. (laughs) You all ready? Sure, yes. Okay. Here's the first quote. We was catching them, unlike Nelson Aguilar. (laughs) Who said that? I don't know his name, but he's a uh, Philly um, yes. Philly Eagles fan. <laughs> yes, that's enough. We'll give it to you. <laughs> this story was bananas, y'all. I loved it. I loved it, too. <laughs> I, my heart was warm. See, that was a perfect break from the news. Oh, my God. So there was this good Samaritan named Hakeem Law. He was a Philly resident who gained attention this week because he saved a woman and a baby trapped in a burning building. He literally caught them as they jumped out of a window to escape the fire. So after he caught them and carried them to safety, he was asked by a local news crew about what he did. And when talking about catching the baby and the mother in his arms as they fled the burning building, he compared his axe to that of Philadelphia Eagles wide receiver Nelson Aguilar, who in a game just days before dropped a critical pass in a recent loss to the Detroit Lions. So he basically said, I can catch babies better than Nelson Aguilar can catch a football. My man just started throwing babies out the window. We was catching them, unlike Aguilar. And his mishaps, I like to put that out there. I just love how he couldn't let that go. He'd saved lives. And he was like, by the way, allow me to register my discontent with my local sports team. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Apparently, this football player, Nelson Aguilar, after he saw that clip, he uh, took the high road and invited Hakeem Law to an Eagles game. That's really nice. (laughs) They should put Hakeem out there on the field, have him catch some footballs now. It Maybe that's what will happen, and right. Aguilar is going to be like, now you do it. Now you, you show me how this yeah. is going to be done since you got something to say. <laughs> All right, Nicole, you got one point. Oh, yay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next quote. We have tape for this one. Your mattress will monitor your nightmares. Your fridge will beep for more cheese. Your front door will sweep wide the moment you approach like some silent butler. Who said that? Who was that? That's that's the prime minister of the country I come from, Boris Johnson. <laughs> oh. Yes, you got it, Bim. 
<laughs> so this is Boris Johnson, prime minister of the U.K., speaking in front of the U.N. this week. Apparently, the speech was about technology and automation and the dangers of automation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, like, and the speech was long. I, I've watched whole chunks of it. Mm-hmm. And, like, I will say, Bim, it, it kind of reels you in before you know it. You're captivated and you're like, what am I watching? What am I hearing? What is this? But you can't stop. I promise you it wears off with time. If you've been if you've been exposed to it, it, it kind of wears off. It's like you're emerging from a dream. Like, wait, what happened? <laughs> I love it. Um, this game is tied. All right. Last quote for all the marbles. Um, guess what I'm talking about, if not the person who said it. The quote is, I opened a Pandora's box and released a Frankenstein monster. Oh, I know. Oh, that's the man who created the Labradoodle. Yes. <laughs> y- y'all were being too nice. Bim said, I know it. And then you waited for Nicole to say it. Bim, you could have won that. I could have, but we're a team, Sam. Oh. <laughs> you see, when okay. one wins, the other wins also as Look well in addition. Look at that. Look at that. <laughs> Teamwork, dream work. I love it. I love it. So y'all got it right. That quote comes from... Wally Conran. He is the creator of the Labradoodle. He's the guy that bred dogs together to make what we know now as a cute, fluffy, well-behaved, hypoallergenic Labradoodle. Uh, He told this week the Australian Broadcasting Corporation that it was his life's regret for creating the Labradoodle. What in the world? They're so cute. Well, he does go on and he says that people are crossbreeding all these different breeds that have all kind of health issues or something, you know, whatever. Just let the dogs do what they do. Yeah. So he he says that people have gone too far with the crossbreeding. He says uh, that all of that increases these Labradoodles' risk of congenital diseases. Which breaks my heart because you see these dogs. They're like some of the cutest dogs around. But like so many of the dog breeds that... Because all dogs essentially are human experiments. Let's be very clear on that. To to an extent. I I am a dog person. I love dogs. And I I always think to myself, like, you know, what have we done to you? What have we we done to you as a species? Like you see these animals and you think, this animal did not ask for any of this. Um... So I know that y'all believe the team of the two of you won together. But officially, Nicole, if you wanted to claim bragging rights, you did win this edition of Who Said That? Oh, well, thank you very much. I I will, you know, treasure this um, <laughs> championship belt of my mind. <laughs> you both can share the award together. Thank you Thanks. so much. Of course, of course. All right. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every Friday, we ask our listeners to share with us the best things that have happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag. They do. Let's listen. Hi, Sam. My name is Rahwa Tassaw in Atlanta, Georgia. And the best part of my week is realizing I have not turned on my TV. Not once. Have a great day. Talk to you later. Hi, Sam. This is Shari Lynn from New Paltz, New York. And the best thing that happened to me all week was watching my son get bar mitzvahed. The best part of my week was I took a whirlwind trip to Colorado to be maid of honor at my best friend's wedding. The best part of my week was my 37th birthday yesterday. Tonight, we found out we paid off our house. We are taking a cruise to Mexico this week. I'm officially a pediatric nurse practitioner. Our new little puppy, Apollo, for the first time ever, sat by the door and whined to let us know that he had to go outside. 
The best thing that happened to me this week is that my boyfriend proposed to me in front of the castle at Central Park and I'm already tearing up just even thinking about it. The best part of my week was watching my friend Martine become an American citizen. The best thing that happened to me this week was I turned 40 on Saturday and my wife threw me a big party. We had barbecue catered and we had all my friends come over and we played music and until the sun went down. Hi Sam, this is Sarah from Alexandria, Virginia, and the best thing that happened to me all week is that just 32 days after having a heart transplant, my mom is returning home just in time to celebrate her 31st wedding anniversary with my dad and her 56th birthday. There's a lot to be happy about this year. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for the show. Have a good week. Bye. Wow. Lovely. Also, shout out to Catered Barbecue. You had me at the words <laughs> Catered Barbecue. Oh my goodness. Thanks to all those listeners you just heard Rawa, Shari, Leah, Erica, Allie, Jamie, Maya, Kristen, and Apollo, her puppy, Daly, Adrian, Dan, and Sarah. Thanks to every listener who sends in audio of their best part of their week. We listen to all of them, even if we can't include them all in the show. Keep them coming. Also, send photos of your dogs and your puppies. Uh, if you want to submit your best thing, just record a voice file on your phone and email that to samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. With that, we're done for the week. Uh, we're going to go out on J-Lo because she's having a week. It was announced this week that Jennifer Lopez will co-headline the Super Bowl halftime show next year with Shakira. She's still living large and in charge. Thank you, J-Lo, for your canon. What, like, what song do you most want to see her perform at the halftime show? Waiting for Tonight. Uh, can I say I think her best song for stadiums mm-hmm. is what's the... Uh, Let's Get Loud. Remember that one? Oh, I hate that one with a burning passion. <laughs> but it I gets the stadium movie. No, oh I goodness. hate it. I hate it. It's just like, it felt It felt bad. It felt cheap. <laughs> I was like, come on, J-Lo. Listen, I am nothing if not an admirer of cheap music. It's, it's my brand. <laughs> Many thanks to my panelists this week. The two hosts of the Slate Podcast, Thirst Aid Kit, Bim Adewanmi and Nicole Perkins. This was so much fun. Come back sometime soon, okay? Thank, Thank you. you so much. This week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Brent Bachman, Anjali Sastry, and Jason Fuller. Our fearless editors are Kitty Isley and Alex McCall. We had help editing this week from Uri Berliner. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. Our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. And a special shout-out to two members of the It's Been a Minute team because they got to go see Lizzo in D.C. this week. Steve, Alex, I wish I was there. Okay, listeners, till next time, thank you for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon. Yeah.